Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. This time, quite literally, Shalom Aleichem. I hear you've been out the country. Is that correct? Yes, yes. I was in Hungary last week. Uh-huh. And can you tell us anything about your trip? Was it with a group? Was it holiday? No, it was almost a fact-finding mission. I was in Budapest when I went to Kerastir and other places in that area. But it's after a two-year absence. A lot has happened. There's a synagogue opened there about three months ago, which had a $100 million facelift. Um, There's a place where hundreds of Jewish kids were hidden during the war, which I got access to while I was there. So, yeah, a lot of things to add. That was in Budapest? All in Budapest, yeah. Yeah, so it's for future trips. Have you ever done an actual trip to Karistir? Um, no, because generally the groups I've taken to Budapest have been uh, less religious, shall we say. Less charistering kind. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've done parts of Hungary, but generally to the west, not to the east. Right. Oh, well, so this week we are starting part two of American Beginnings. This one is called California, which took place in the 1850s. Yes. So it's about the California gold rush which started in 1848 when gold was discovered by a guy called James Marshall. And it would bring 300,000 people to California, both from other parts of the United States and the world at large. And San Francisco grew from a small, almost village of 200 residents in 1846 to over 35,000 six years later. And the population was almost entirely male because they'd come out to mine the gold rush. And fueled by this sort of flow of gold, San Francisco basically telescoped a century of growth into uh, a few years. But you can imagine that there were initially no houses, no infrastructure. People lived in tents, in wooden shacks. They literally came in droves and the place didn't exist. So between December 1849 and June 1851, San Francisco went through seven fires, of which the one in May 1851 destroyed almost three quarters of the town. And it's not just the living conditions that were being made up on the spot. At the beginning of the gold rush, there were no real laws regarding property rights. There was a makeshift system called staking claims. There was no private property or licensing fees or taxes. It only recently had become a state taken over from the Mexicans. And what's quite ironic is that California nowadays is a staunchly democratic-leaning state. But at the time, it was the icon of rugged individual capitalism. So, you know, as Republican as it gets, really. Hmm. 
and you've got you know the iconic image of uh, rough men with beards bent over pans of gravel in rushing streams of water these uh, 49ers as history refers to them because it was in 1849 which was the peak year for the gold rush and the promise of wealth was so strong that not only the passengers but even the crews as in the people who manned ships when they got to San Francisco they they deserted and they rushed off to the gold fields and the outcome was that there were 500 i mean approximately 500 abandoned ships in San Francisco harbor some of these then got used as store ships or hotels but many of them were just left there to rot and no one in the town had the time or the ability or I guess even the authority to tidy things up and the town became a haven for gambling and many miners you know lost their fortunes one night they were gambling with actual gold at the table not with you know Hmm. poker chips it's almost impossible to visualize it more than the wild west it was uh, a wilderness so these were privately owned gold mines they weren't government uh, no not at all they were completely privately owned yes absolutely As long as you were there, it was yours. And the people arriving, you know, hoped to change their lives within a few months. Although, actually, the greater effect was worldwide. Because this sudden influx of gold into the money supply reinvigorated the American economy. And, you know, farmers in Chile, in Australia, they found a huge new market for their food. These people who'd made money bought British manufactured goods and there was investment around the world because there was now a large amount of gold going around. And in reality, most of the miners didn't end up with much more money than they had arrived with. Obviously, there were exceptions. There was an enormous assortment of nationalities and religions coming to California, including many thousands of Jews. It's not the sort of thing we would even imagine nowadays. It's not like a coilor opening up in California, just a... No, no, it was nothingsville. And, you know, and, it, and it, months of travel, there were no contacts there, you know, no LinkedIn. But the Jews who went were both pushed from Europe by the political reactions after the revolutions of 1848 and were pulled to America by the news of this discovery, discovery of gold. And basically, they, they felt they had little to lose, which was true. And interestingly, for these arriving Jews, there was very little racial prejudice. That's not true for the Native Americans who were there, or even the Mexicans and others. But for the Jews, there was nothing to hold them back. So America being known as the place where the streets paved with gold, I'm assuming came from then. Yes, it was translated as happening in New York on the on the East Coast, but it came yeah, it came from the West. But the problem that people initially had, the Jews, but you know anybody, was how to get there. There was no railroad between the East and West Coast of America, so you had a choice: you could travel by land or by sea. And neither of them were palatable, really, Uh, because to go overland across the obviously, you know, 3000 miles, the entire United States, 
you could join a caravan or a small group on horseback across thousands of miles, most of it uninhabited. Or you could go by sea. And even though European Jews obviously were familiar with travel over oceans, they'd already crossed the Atlantic to get to America, this was far longer. You had two options. Bearing in mind that the Panama Canal only opens in 1914, so that bisects, that cuts North and South America. So you can get from one side of America to the other by going through the middle between North and South, but you couldn't do so at the time. So one option was literally to sail around the whole of South America, all the way down past Brazil, Argentina, Cape Horn, and then all the way back up South America on the West Coast, and that took over four months. Or you took a ship to Panama, you got off the ship, you crossed Central America by mule, and then you resumed your journey by ship, which took five, sometimes eight weeks, depending on the availability of ships on the western side. And, you know, sometimes travellers would have to camp out for weeks waiting for these ships, uh, which often were damaged at sea. And the Jewish passengers, we've got diaries from a number of them. They sort of sought out each other to share kosher food, to celebrate the Jewish Yom Tovim. So although the passage around the bottom of South America took two months longer, many people preferred it because the Panama crossing was more hazardous. There were diseases in the region. The truth is either route was long and hard, and in fact, death was a frequent occurrence. There was a survey in 1852 that worked out that one out of 10 passengers who went to San Francisco by ship died before arriving in California. What did the Jews do when they got there? I I just can't imagine loads of from Jews digging for gold. Right. We we will come to this two parts to your question. First of all, what did they do? And second of all, what did they do in terms of uh, their Judaism, which we, we will come to? The first we can answer more easily. Obviously, generally, the Jews did not become the gold miners, <laughs> not quite what they would do. They did what they were familiar with. They became merchants or traders. You know, they sold food, clothing, hardware, generally in the smaller mining areas. Some of them lived in San Francisco itself, where they were sort of operating wholesale. And on occasion, if an individual had become quite successful and they had their sort of wholesale branch in San Francisco, they would bring over members of the family, you know, brothers, nephews from Europe to manage smaller places in the interior, in the actual mining towns, villages, because Jews had throughout the centuries seen that you could you know, bring in a relative who could be trusted as the manager of a smaller part of the firm, and this trust was important in building up their business. But regardless of where they ended up, their first port of call was almost always San Francisco itself. Are there any famous Jews that we know of who did this route? Well, the most famous is a guy called Levy, or to us nowadays, Levi Strauss, the maker of blue jeans. And 
Time magazine wrote an account of how Levi Strauss came up with the idea for his uh, trademark denims in 1950, which was around a century after he arrived. Um, I'll read you an extract. So they write that 20-year-old Strauss sailed from Manhattan round Cape Horn to San Francisco, took the long route, looking for a fortune in the gold fields and carried with him a roll of canvas in his baggage, which he intended to sell to a tent maker to get enough cash for a grub stake, which means a mining field. But when he got ashore, the complaint of a friendly miner gave him a better idea because this miner said to him, pants don't wear worth a hoot up in the diggings, which I'm sure you can translate into English. You can't... Great, great Californian accent, really. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> you can't get a pair strong enough to last no time. Who says that that miner was a Californian? He was probably a... You know, Another European from, Jew. Yeah, or from Chile. <laughs> so Strauss goes into the clothing business and he has a tailor cut him a pair of trousers from his canvas roll and the miner is strolling all over town boasting how strong these pants of Levi Strauss were. And years later, a miner who annoyed his tailor by regularly carrying rocks around that tore the pocket seams of his trousers gave the tailor the idea to use rivets on the corner of the pockets, and these were the source of his signature rivets. It's a great story. It's not true. Well, not really. Anyway, <laughs> Strauss did go west, but he went there to open a dry goods store for gold miners, which was already the family business established on the East Coast. And the crucial tip-off from the tailor about the rivets came from a customer of his, a Jew who was looking for a big business partner to back the idea and, you know, sort of pay for the patent. And in May 1873, so 20 years after he got there, Strauss and his partner, a guy called Jacob Davis, were given this patent for work pants strengthened with rivets. And so, you know, on the jeans to this day, it says since 1853. Which Sounds a is, bit more accurate then. Yes, of absolutely. Uh, what was about the other fact we mentioned, uh, Judaism? The Judaism. How, yeah. Right. So having mentioned all the improvisation of the physical infrastructure, Judaism itself was brand new. It was non-existent. There was nothing. There wasn't a single shawl. There wasn't anything Jewish. Eventually, the London Jewish Chronicle, which was already around at the time, published articles concerning immigration to California. And Jews in Europe learned that even Orthodox Judaism could be practiced in California by 1851. You've got a letter that they uh, printed from a guy called Samuel Cohen, who was a young English immigrant to the West Coast. And he writes, and I quote it, We have kosher meat, a burial ground, and a synagogue, Sheiris Israel, which was formed three days before Passover. We have 42 members, mostly English. Our form of prayer, Nusach, is that of the great synagogue of London. We have a shoichet, he writes that word in Hebrew, and Isaacs of Browns Lane baked the matzahs for Pesach. 
I do not think that the Jews in any part of the world could have kept the Passover more strictly than we did, and I'm happy to say that he intends to keep a kosher house all the year round so that we shall be enabled to eat lawful meats. So you had some form of infrastructure, even for the Orthodox. And there's a, a community, Grass Valley, that talked about their society being organized in 1856, and they have a Sefer Torah and a Shafer, a cemetery, which they say hopefully is never going to be used, which is very sweet. Um, <laughs> and they expect to keep Purim and Pesach according to halacha, not according to fashion. And they have the Polish Minig because they are Orthodox. But having said that, the West Coast was far from being an Orthodox enclave. I'll read you a different account from an American Jewish paper, which is titled The Day of Atonement in Nevada City, 1852. Because remember, the, the beginnings are not strictly in California itself. It does spread out slightly further east, so even in what is today Nevada State. And he writes, two years ago when I first arrived, it was a small mining village. There were only five or six Jews, but many have wended their way and there are now 30 Jews, most of whom are willing to close their stores and suspend business on our great holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And the way they got together, these people, because they might not have all been resident in this one place, was by taking out a sort of an advert in the local non-Jewish paper. And to a, a Jew, being able to run a minion openly in a sort of a rented public hall and do so by advertising it in the local newspaper read mostly by non-Jews was declaring that the Jews had achieved equal citizenship with the rest of the community. So, you know, for them, this is an important element. Yet, even while they have this equality, these twice-a-year services conducted by these immigrants in small towns through the West represented a desire to keep a relationship, even if only a sentimental one, uh, with the old faith that they had practiced in Europe. And there is one description, it's actually written by a non-Jew, which I came across about a bris meal, about circumcision, which this non-Jew calls a nipping in the bud, <laughs> which is very sweet. And there is a full diary that was written by an experienced published traveler who was orthodox, a guy called Israel Joseph Benjamin, who was born in Europe in 1818 and he became a lumber trader, but his business folded and he then went into the travel industry, I guess you could call it. He wanted to emulate uh, Benjamin of Tudela, who'd written about Jewish life during the 12th century. So he called himself Benjamin II. And at first he went to Egypt, Syria, what he called Babylon, India, Afghanistan, and he wrote a book about it. And then he set off again to uh, Italy, Morocco, Algeria. And then in 1859, he raised funds, uh, he got uh, sponsorship for his next project, 
which was to go to the USA. And he spent three years there. His book is written in German. I'm not sure if there is an English translation. But he spent a year on the East Coast and then set out for California. And over the next months after his arrival, he traveled all over the place. He came there a decade after it all started, so he was able to really see how it had developed. And yes, an extract here, he writes, we sailed through the Golden Gate. Obviously, the Golden Gate Bridge didn't exist, but the Golden Gate is that uh, part of water. And an hour later landed at the great capital of the West, San Francisco. I had to work my way through a mob of drivers for carriages for hire, agents for hotels. Obviously, you know, everyone knows that people arriving are generally likely to be first timers. He writes about San Francisco and then he travels to Sacramento which had about 500 Jews, much smaller. And he talks about the congregation that was set up in 1859, and they built a shawl. The German and Polish Jews were at first united and then separated, he says, because of the chazen, whom apparently the Germans didn't get on with. And they left the shawl to their Polish compatriots, and they formed a new congregation called Bnei HaSholem. And it's got $3,000 in its treasury, which is actually a lot of money back then, you know, 150 years ago. But there was money around from those who'd become successful. And he talks about the Bnei HaShalom congregation saying that they celebrate Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in a rented house. And that that is almost all they do by way of religious activity although he talks of a social club organized by young Jews with 40 members, which is highly thought of because it is charitable, not just to Jewish causes, but just generally. What he then goes on to say is as follows. In most places in California, if any Israelites live there at all, their first set is to provide themselves with a cemetery. No matter how indifferent in many places our fellow Jews are towards their religion, they are never so completely estranged from all religious feeling when it comes to burying their dead. When it comes to living life, the people of this land are entirely too much interested in gold, although I must add to the credit of some that this is not true of all. Unfortunately, it is true of the majority. So I guess it's a bit like um, Bilom, Thomas Nafshi, Mois Yashorim. You know, I want to live like a non-Jew as long as I die like a Jew. But this fascination, this interest, urge almost for a basic forest means that today in California, you can find Matsevas that date back to then. Um, tiny ones, just a little parcel of land, how many Jews were in these smaller areas, but, you know, very particular about making sure they had one. Now, there was another way in which the Jews of these cities and towns connected to fellow Jews and to Judaism, and that is through Jewish newspapers. If a person wanted the more traditional Judaism, then they subscribed to Isaac Lisa's Occident in published in uh, Philadelphia, or to Rabbi Julius Ekman's San Francisco paper, The uh, Weekly Gleaner. 
and if they had more liberal leanings than they went for Isaac Mayer Weiss or one of the others, they, you know, by that time it was established enough that you could choose. Wow. I presume that as time went on in San Francisco, things got more sophisticated and developed. It all sounds a bit old-fashioned and uh, makeshift. Yes, yes. Uh, so absolutely. Firstly, mining itself evolved in its techniques. You know, the pan and the shovel were replaced with uh, machines and deep underground mining. But one of the other differences was that major European banking houses got interested in Californian gold and it became a major business. Rothschild sent its agent, a guy called Benjamin Davidson, who was making monthly shipments of anywhere between $100,000 to $300,000, which, as you can imagine, quite a lot of money back then. And he then appoints a guy, a guy called Schliemann, as his agent in Sacramento. He was in San Francisco. And he opens what you might call a bank, which is supported by Rothschild. It's got a line of credit. And it was one of the first and certainly one of the strongest, although by 1853, San Francisco had 19 banks. And what obviously was the case is that in comparison with London or Paris or New York, the economy there was chaotic. Uh, there were endless ways to make and I guess lose money in the city. And the Rothschilds were instinctively entrepreneurial and they obviously would not resist San Francisco's many opportunities. It wasn't straightforward because, you know, if you wrote a letter from San Francisco, it took two months to reach London. So you can imagine a reply is four months in the making, by which time the conditions could have changed. Uh, but OK, that was, you know, part of the risk that you took. Davidson himself is an interesting guy. He was born in 1823 in England, I think in London. His father, from about 1810 onwards, was in business with Nathan Mayer Rothschild. And his father, in 1816, married Jessie Cohen. And her sisters, one married Nathan Mayer Rothschild and one married Moses Montefiore. So he's now the brother-in-law to these people. And that, of course, uh, made uh, Benjamin Davidson a first cousin to Rothschild's sons, uh, to Anthony and Maya, who ran the London office after their father died in 1836. And he was also a first cousin to Nathaniel, who worked in Paris with Baron James de Rothschild. So obviously well in with the family, makes perfect sense to send him out there as an agent. Now, he obviously goes through all the history of San Francisco. He was there for 10 years. So he experiences the history. And the Great Fire of May 1851 is one that affects him both materially, because, you know, his house and his bank burned down, and personally. He escapes from the fire by getting onto the roof and diving through the fire in wet clothes with a damp, a wet sponge in his mouth and slipping down the walls uh, with a blanket wrapped around him. So, you know, he very much was part and parcel of what was going on there. But his standing as a banker 
was clearly, he was highly regarded. There was a bank run in 1855 and a number of other banks went out of business and he, you know, met the attack and survived. He paid out $800,000 in eight days and stopped the run on the banks, that which they couldn't do much later in 1929. And the press wrote about him that he is the recipient of the aid of Jews and foreigners, because obviously there must have been people who chipped in and, and made sure that uh, he survived. And he was also engaged in miscellaneous uh, commercial activities. He, he speculated in brick and woods, which were obviously at a premium after the fire. He even had an assortment of pianos for sale. And the, um, the vice consul of France talks about a large shipment of uh, wine, cognac, glassware, various other things, which came from Davidson. So obviously he was somebody who was as entrepreneurial as his bosses. There was tension between Davidson and the Rothschilds, not of his making, but because there was rivalry between the London and the Paris houses. Uh, each of which wanted to make the most out of the gold trade. And there was a letter that Davidson wrote to Mayor de Rothschild in 1849, sorry, 1859, where Baron James in Paris, who was the wealthiest person in France, not the wealthiest Jew, he was the wealthiest person in France. At some stage, we need to do a podcast just about him. So he's infuriated by a letter where he finds out that Davidson has been instructed not to send any gold to France at all. And there was drama in San Francisco and California as well, because this agent that Davidson had hired, a guy called Schliemann, after eight months, he found out that Schliemann had been defrauding the public. Interestingly, he doesn't seem to have defrauded Rothschilds themselves. Um, so Davidson travels from San Francisco to Sacramento and gets uh, this Schliemann, his agent, to leave the country. And he writes various letters to the Rothschilds about this. The third one, which was written in German, says that he believes that Schliemann made a good deal of money, vieles Geld, through this Schwindlerei, which <laughs> I don't think we need to translate. Um, what, what was the Schwindlerei? So it, Davidson never in his letters spelt out the sort of precise nature of it, other than that he gave false weight. But it was obviously serious enough for him to leave the country, presumably not just to avoid arrest and prosecution, but the less formal punishment, because it was still lawless out there. And there was a lynching in 1851, which could have happened to him if his vilas guilt um, was the object of one or two people who had some form of power or, you know, ability to get people together in a lynching. So he got out of there pretty quickly. The interesting thing is that the newspapers there do not appear to have noted any scandal and there was no break in the routine. They just wrote that, you know, in place of Mr. Schliemann, there's a new guy come in and uh, Schliemann's gone back to Europe to attend to some family matters and we wish the new guy, the you know, good luck. No tabloids back then. Yes, well, I'm, I think there were, but I guess it was much harder to get hold of information. 
So, and Davidson stays there for 10 years. And when he left, he sold his house for $15,000 to the Jews in order to build a synagogue on those grounds. It belonged to a Jew before it became a shawl, which was quite interesting. And that was the Rothschild's link with the gold rush. One perhaps last matter, and that is that California's early Jewish history also includes the little-known role that they had in financially supporting less fortunate Jews around the world, outside of the USA. Because as the news of these riches made its way around the globe to, you know, London and Jerusalem, it not only inspired newspaper articles, but solicitations for aid, especially from what was known at the time as Palestine. In California, the, the dusty young merchants had little time to pray. So a relationship developed in which their community raised funds while the other one in the Middle East studied and prayed. There were about 8,000 Jews in the old city of Jerusalem living under a corrupt Turkish regime where taxes were arbitrary. And they were in the old city and they were on Arab-owned land where there was a monopoly on rents. So they relied heavily on charity from the diaspora through emissaries who traveled the world. And interestingly, there's more than just a uh, symbolic relationship. Both places, uh, Jerusalem and California, experienced significant growth between 1850 and 1880. The steamship facilitated migration to both. It shortened the trip from Odessa to Palestine to a week rather than many weeks of sailing the pirate-infested Mediterranean. And obviously did the same eventually for the West Coast in America. But it allowed news to travel and be printed. And European visitors to Jerusalem wrote accounts of life there that were reprinted um, across the world, including the Jewish press in San Francisco. And as rabbis in Jerusalem learned of this or these prosperous new communities in California, they went there. They sent Shluchei Derachmona, Meshulachim, one guy called Rabbi Nissen Weinstein, requested that the synagogues begin annual subscriptions and that uh, there be collection boxes in the synagogues and the homes. And he promised in return that donors who entered their names in the record book would have prayers said for them by the congregations in Jerusalem. Not much has changed. No, no. And he comes back in November 1861, and the rabbis and lay leaders of uh, Sheir Israel and uh, Emmanuel, the two synagogues there, met and founded a charitable society. Uh, they met in the Kosher St. Nicholas's Hotel. And although the two synagogues had very different opinions in terms of their Judaism, one was Reform, one was Orthodox, they both felt the need to contribute to the relief of the Jews in Palestine. And a, an organization called Ohave Tzion was born in San Francisco. And people would come to the, the West Coast and not just to the large towns, but even the smaller supply and mining communities. 
And, you know, you have a record of the individual lodgers of Northern California sending $460 to, to Palestine. However, Eva Kahn, in her book on Californian Jews, writes that the links between the Golden Land and the Promised Land changed dramatically in 1885 by two events. First of all, the death of Sir Moses Montefiore, who was the conduit to funds going to Jerusalem. And secondly, the issuing of the Pittsburgh Platform by the Reform Movement, which de-emphasized Israel's importance both in Jewish practice and in prayer, and was removed from their political platform until 1937. So since by this time, Californian Jews were becoming quite reform-orientated, it created almost entirely, not totally, but a, a break between the two. And finally, in 1858, when the Pope sanctioned the kidnapping of a Jewish child in Bologna, demonstrations were held across the world. And the largest rally was in San Francisco, which had three thousand participants, a thousand more than in New York City. So clearly the Jews there still did identify as Jews and with Jewish causes, especially Jewish injustices, perhaps more so Jewish injustices because they were so far removed from anything else and anybody else that that was something that still very much called to them, obviously alongside the Jewish cemeteries. Fascinating. Thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch. Do we know what next week's title is going to be? It's probably going to be The Passage or The Passport. Okay. They both sound intriguing. (laughs) We'll see you next week. Thank you very much for listening. And as always, any comments or questions can be sent to podcast at jd.org.uk. Many thanks, Rabbi Hirsch. (laughs) Thank you.